Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. On today's episode, I welcome in Randy Ginsberg, who is the founder of Third Wall Creative, a content marketing and copywriting agency for B2B tech companies and VC firms. And Randy was previously on the podcast all the way back in episode 87, but I wanted to bring him back on as he worked to start Third Wall Creative while he was at his nine to five, and then how he made the jump to start doing this full time and continue to accelerate the growth. So I hope you all enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Randy. And without further ado, please welcome in Randy Ginsberg. Randy, welcome back to the podcast. Good to have you, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, Brian. Glad to be back. Yeah, thanks for taking some time out from your travels all over the globe. So uh, it's good to have you. Yeah, I'm still recovering from the jet lag. So (laughs) hopefully I'm pretty articulate, but we'll see. Well, and I want to get into that a little bit because obviously part of that is because of the switch you made to be able to do some travel and and kind of work remote. Um, So I kind of want to start and and really I'd love, you know, obviously when, when you were on before, we talked a lot about your upbringing, talked a lot about, you know, you know, your book you did and all these other things. But I really want to focus today because I, I think a lot of people go through this of they work a nine to five. They're just grinding it out, but they have these ideas and aspirations to do other things. And they're not really sure of, of how to maybe leave what the plan is. Now, everyone's is going to be different, as we know. Everyone's circumstances are different. But I'd love for you to kind of share and maybe start off maybe as a good kind of jump point in when did you get the idea to say, hey, I'm at, I'm at this organization doing well, but I would like to be doing something different. Like when did that idea kind of start in your head? How long after you got there? Yeah, for sure. So I think for some initial context, I think I've definitely had kind of the entrepreneurial spirit since I was a kid, a teenager, and was messing around with different side ventures and side businesses. And so if you asked me what I wanted to do when I was, you know, 10 or 15, the same answer would be, I want to start a company. And then the obvious follow-up question would be, well, what type of company? And I had no idea, but I knew that I wanted to work for myself. So even after graduating and going into um, the workforce, first for a very big company, Macy's, and then for a smaller startup like Bombus, I still had the idea that I wanted to do something of my own, but didn't necessarily know how that would shape out. And so my, I guess you can call it corporate background is actually in product development and apparel manufacturing. So working with overseas vendors to source the cotton and the nylon and all of the materials that go into developing whatever that product may be, whether it's t-shirts, socks, hoodies, things like that. And so I spent, you know, three or four years doing that in the corporate world. And that had stemmed from an interest that I had explored during kind of my more exploratory entrepreneurial teenage years, but I spent my time doing that. And at the same time as that was going well, I knew that there was a bit of a ceiling in terms of how far I could go with that. Um, There's a very big portion if you want to become a VP of sourcing or a VP of product development, um, you need to be really good at the product development side, but you also need to be really good at the production side. Mm -hmm. And by production, that means once the PO is placed, once the purchase order is placed, and you are now producing millions of units of whatever that product is getting it from the factory to the distribution center on time, um, dealing with the logistics. It's more of a kind of supply chain side. And I was really interested in the product development side, which was a bit more creative, sourcing the materials, doing the testing, product testing, the feedback, but I wasn't nearly as good or interested in the production side. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that if I were to continue to 
try to excel in this field, I would either need to become interested in that or get really good in that. And that just wasn't where I saw myself planning out. So I kind of was feeling happy, but looking for a change. And at the time I'd been writing a lot. So I'd written that book um, five years ago during COVID. I started a newsletter like everyone else and was writing, you know, once or twice a week about emerging tech and entrepreneurship and just really a bunch of different industries that interested me and was just doing that for the love of the game for free. And after two years of publishing and having all of this kind of backlog of content that was published and out there, and I'd built up a bit of an audience, I figured why not to try my hand at freelancing. And so I remember I told kind of my coworker, who's also one of my really close friends, she was the same level as me. We were both, I think, assistants or associates at the time. I said, hey, I'm going to kind of give this a shot. And that was really what it was. I just started doing it on the side and it very quickly became something where it was there was decent money coming in as a side hustle, but it was like, okay, if I'm moonlighting this, you know, doing this from 8 to 8 p.m. to midnight or 10 p.m. to midnight, what could it be if I devoted my whole time to it? And that kind of sparked my initial interest. When you think back at that, did you think about structure of your day? Because, you know, this is the thing that comes up is obviously you have to create hours in the day, right? Because you're working, let's call it the nine to five. You have to figure out minus sleep. When are you going to actually do some of this freelance work, this additional work? How did you think about structuring your day? Like, was it the eight you know, to 12 PM? Was it, you know, five in the morning to 7 AM? Like, did you have some idea in your head or kind of just made it up as you went along? Uh, it was kind of a mix of both. I think part of it was just necessity. So um, during my time at Bombas, it was definitely a more demanding, quote unquote, nine to five that probably extended beyond those hours. So my time um, was mostly at night where I had to write. Um, that being said, I also, after publishing for two years, was pretty accustomed to working on weekends. So Sundays were always a day and they still are where I kind of try to get ahead of the game. And I obviously devote some time to relaxing, but also a lot of time to just getting myself prepared or doing working on side projects. So a lot of that came at night or on like a weekend trying to brush up on that. Yeah. Well, that's another thing too. Like you, like the weekends, we we kind of were grown up of like, oh, you work five days and then you're off for two and it's kind of this repeated pattern. Once you realize like, okay, that's if you're a cog in the system, you're going to go through that. But to create, to get out of that, you have to put in those hours, not only just at night, but to your point on the weekends and figure that out, right? That's a tough thing. Yeah. I don't know if you grew up that. I know you're younger than me. I don't know if that was something ingrained in you of like, go to work, get a job, enjoy the week, live for the weekends, right? That's the thing we hear, live for the weekend. And it's like, eh, that's not really the best way to do it in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not the person who's going to say you need to work 24-7 all the time. I think work-life balance and all that is very important. Um, I think in the beginning, it was me just doing something that I genuinely enjoyed. So I really enjoyed writing. I really enjoyed researching about you know new businesses, tech, things like that. Like if Regardless if I was getting paid or not, that's probably how I would have spent a lot of my just free time. I don't love watching Netflix or anything. I'd rather just be kind of in internet rabbit holes or watching YouTube videos. So I was doing a lot of that stuff anyway, almost as relaxation, which I think made it a bit more achievable for me to do that on weekends where it didn't feel like I was necessarily doing the work. Of course, some parts of it are still work. And there were definitely times where I would have rather been, you know, out with friends or doing watching football or doing whatever I was doing. But I think there's a lot of, especially when you commit to writing something or doing something every week like a newsletter or at a specific cadence and you have an audience of people who are expecting that to go out you kind of speak that almost into existence or build that structure into existence and so for me it, it became just this really routine habit that 
once it transitioned from maybe writing a newsletter to doing client work, it was still the idea that, okay, you're going to sit down at these times and do it. And once I was able to kind of switch that in my mind, it made it a lot easier. Mm. I want to come back there. I'm going to put a pin in that for a second. It made, it made me think about something earlier. When you took the job at Bombas, like, because that you mentioned earlier, hey, I'm entrepreneurial. I've always wanted to start my own business. And now you're going to work for a company and be a W-2 employee and, and the whole nine. I guess I'm asking more from like an ego standpoint. Like, did you have to kind of check yourself and be like, Hey, listen, I'm looking at the long game. This is important for me financially now or for X, Y, and Z reason. I'm just kind of curious how you thought through that, getting that role and then obviously being there for a little while. Yeah, for sure. I think part of the beauty of um, Bombus was the fact that at the time, and it still is, it was in really, you know, hyper growth. So I had a lot of opportunity to obviously do the sourcing stuff, but also get my hands dirty in other aspects of the business. But at the same time, I definitely did come in, you know, very overly ambitious and wanting to impact all different areas of the organization at once. And even to the point where I had some people tell me like, you know, this is what you were hired for, you need to focus on this. So I think there is a balance there, for sure. But no, I being in a high paced startup environment where I knew that I was able to learn a ton, get a lot of exposure that I wouldn't have been able to necessarily do at a larger uh, company that made it worth it. And I definitely was learning um, a lot about now, you know, product and manufacturing and just how cross-functional teams work and a lot of stuff that whatever I go on to do next, I think that information will be pretty valuable. So overall it was incredibly net positive. And especially as I start to work in different sectors in the retail sector and other e-commerce, like with the third wall in the current business, having that experience with Bombus and some of the partnerships we've done. And obviously the social proof of Bombus too has definitely gone a long way. Mm. So help me out on you, how you got your first few clients freelance. You're doing it on the side. You're still at Bombus. Like how did, was that just people that knew you from the newsletter? Was that, were you doing any you know outreach? How, how did you get those first few, uh, few clients? Yeah, so it was definitely tapping kind of existing connections, you being one of them. So you actually referred me to one of my first right. clients. And I had uh, a few friends who were entrepreneurs who had run businesses who, you know, we've known each other, whether it's since teenage years, or whether I interviewed them for my book, who definitely took a flyer on me and believed in what I was doing and had read the newsletter for two years and knew and read the book and knew that I was able to write. And so that's really where that first one started. And then I think like every story of people getting started or you know success however you view it there's a big bit of luck that's involved and so i definitely caught a really lucky break where i'm uh somewhat active on twitter but at the time was a lot more active than i am now and i had seen a woman on twitter post some tweet along the lines of basically some it was like some personal news I'm leaving my job at X company to go try my hand at the freelance life. Would love to connect with any, you know, freelancers, operators, content marketers, whatever it may be. And that posted numbers, right? It got like, you know, 200 likes, a bunch of retweets, a bunch of people commented. And so I had seen that probably two or three weeks before I decided to give in my two weeks to Bombus or maybe right as I gave in my two weeks, but definitely before I left the company. And I'd made a mental note that I was going to schedule a tweet that was essentially what she wrote. So I'm leaving my job at Bombus to go try my hand at freelancing. Um, would love to connect with anyone. And I set it, scheduled it, and I honestly forgot about it. And then one day, my phone, when it went live, my phone started blowing up. And that reminded me. And the tweet, like hers, did numbers. You know, there's a really 
small and niche but engaged community of direct to consumer e-commerce people content writers freelance writers on twitter and a handful of people who i didn't know were just writing you know congrats 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 you had other people from pretty big companies like shopify or triple whale reaching out in the dm saying hey you know we need content and i think they hadn't written or they hadn't read any of my past work but i think the fact that they saw the bombus and the social proof there mm -hmm. probably carried a lot of weight and that one tweet led to, you know, I could have left and had a half pack schedule with some existing clients and been in outreach mode and trying to get me going. Or because of that tweet, I left with a fully packed schedule and jumped right into it. And, you know, those clients became some long-term clients. Those clients referred on other people. So I'm not sure if I, I may go as far as saying it was, you know, a life-changing tweet because it really did kind of yeah. set the trajectory for everything else that was to come. And without that, I think I would have had much more, I guess, trouble just getting started. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it also proves that you have to, you have to do some level of self-promotion. Like you can't just sit back, it, whether it's cold outreach of emails or DMs, or again, you're saying, yeah, you put a tweet out. But again, if you didn't do that, if you're like, well, I'm just going to kind of do my thing. I'm not going to let people know. Like what's the, my thing is always like, what's the worst that happens with something like that, right? I don't know yep. what bad could happen. The risk is completely asymmetric. And I'm someone who I naturally am not self-promotional and I need to kind of tell myself even now, mm -hmm. post this online, let people know what you're doing. And also the fact that you might have a thousand followers, but your tweet or your LinkedIn post does not reach all a thousand followers every time you post. So you might think, oh, I'm beating this idea to death. I'm posting about content five times a week. I'm saying the same thing, but you're actually many times getting that idea in front of an entirely new audience every single time. And so just because you post something once doesn't mean that everyone's going to see it. And it doesn't mean your target target audience is going to see it either. So yeah, without, like I said, without that tweet, I would be in a very different position than I am now for sure. Well, that's one thing I, this is a, we'll take a slight tangent down the alleyway here, but like I've learned this recently, which I never thought about was like taking one piece of content. I mean, you could literally make five, 10 P like even one tweet, you can turn to five to 10 different tweets from the same exact yeah. tweet. Just by tweaking yeah. it a little bit, adding a little more context or taking stuff away, the way you structure it, the first sentence you use, like there's so many different things you can do, you know, is there anything, yeah, I'm, I, mean, I guess maybe while we're on that, like anything you've learned, especially from the copy side where you're really good at, of like structuring tweets, content, anything of that nature that's relevant maybe? Yeah, I mean, we could go very much down that rabbit hole, but obviously from just the tweet side and any type of short form copy, the hook is the most important. So people are scrolling, attention spans are super short. Having a really punchy attention grabbing hook is important. Um, people like specifics, they like stories. So whether it's personal stories of here's how I am, you know, here's how I was, here's how I am now, this is how I got there, or um, I'm not a big fan of being like, this is how I made X amount of money, but those tweets do work because everyone wants to make money and you're putting in a, a specific number attached to it and things like that work. But I think on the repurposing front, um, something that we really encourage clients to do is you could have the best written blog post in the world, but if you don't have the distribution around it, it's completely useless. You know, people aren't just going to naturally gravitate towards your site. Mm -hmm. So it's how do you take a blog post that let's say may be a uh, case study where you've interviewed one of your customers. How do you you have that case study, but you can then repurpose those quotes into really attention grabbing graphic assets for LinkedIn and then write some social copy or Twitter and write some social copy. And then you can turn that case study into a carousel for Instagram. You know, 
these long form blogs and the long form written content, you can repurpose that, like you said, into five, 10, 20 pieces of content. And that's something that, and that's across site, that's across social, that's across email. So you can really stretch your content pretty far. You just need to look at it as kind of this uh, broader piece of clay that then you can then, you know, mold and take pieces apart, separate into different balls, things like that. Yeah. When you say hook, are you, is that normally the first sentence that they would see pretty much? Yeah. First sentence, first or second sentence. Uh, yeah. Just immediately grab their attention or otherwise if it's boring, people are just going to keep scrolling. Yeah. Is that the same for email? Like do you, cause you have the subject line and then you have like a preview text. Would that be, what, what would be the hook on the email if someone's doing that? Yeah, I, a mix of both. So subject line, definitely, right? That's the first thing that people are reading. You want to have a catchy subject line, but the preview text directly complements that. Um, I think you're even seeing, you had a lot of e-commerce companies who have these really beautiful graphic design emails. But if you look at data, there's a handful of emails that are written in just plain text that convert just as well. Yeah. Um, and it's all, especially when you get into the copywriting side, there's so much consumer psychology and just, Direct, like direct response copy is just consumer psychology speaking to buyers, tapping into their pain points, tapping into their desires. And so there's different types of writing, but knowing what people want, how they want it and how to speak to them is, is by far and away the most mm -hmm. important thing. And I know we probably could do a whole episode just on co copy editing and um, those sort of things. Um, I, I want to circle back to, so leaving Bombas, did you have a number in mind that you needed to have like maybe a recurring uh, each month with your current clients to, to step and leave? Or did you have enough like saved up where you had a, a runway? How did you structure, I guess, the plan to walk? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to make somewhat near my current salary, but um, I wasn't making crazy money at the time, but it was definitely enough to live. And I was living in New York City where there was obviously um, really high rent. And I had a pretty high rent at the time. So I knew that even with my current Bomba salary, I was probably going to be digging into my savings on the new lease. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to still kind of stay in that range. But at the same time, there was an element of risk to it where I was willing to, you know, exhaust the savings that I had saved up that probably would have lasted me you now seven or eight months if absolutely nothing came in. But knowing that I had a little bit of money already coming in, enough to pay rent at least not pay my full cost of living but pay rent per month that made it a bit more achievable and then i'm definitely fortunate for the fact that you know i was living in new york city my parents still lived in um a suburb right outside of new york city so absolute worst comes to worst if i couldn't you know pay my rent the lease goes up i move back home and i live from home and so that was a very fortunate position to be in and at the time i had no wife and kids no rent was my only responsibility so that was the big thing but I knew that I could go and get another job and um, I had a resume that would allow me to do so I had connections that would allow me to do so so the risk was pretty asymmetric it didn't feel like it was all or nothing but if I didn't have savings or I didn't have that kind of fallback then I don't know if I would have taken that risk well and I, I guess going deeper on that did, like when you started Bombas did you have was the clock already starting? Like when you made, did you make decisions? And I'm kind of, where I'm kind of, I guess, leaving the breadcrumbs to is like the delayed gratification. Like knowing you wanted to start your own thing, you didn't go buy a fancy car, big house, and these type of things where you got locked in. Did you have that in mind? I'm assuming maybe it's a yes, but like, how did you think about the first day? Like, all right, I got to start putting away a little bit extra so 
I had that runway when the time came. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm naturally a pretty frugal person. Um, obviously, New York City is expensive, but I did my best to kind of manage my expenses where I could and put stuff away knowing that at some point I would want to start something. Um, luckily, freelance writing is probably one of the least capital intensive kind of endeavors that you can take on. So there wasn't that much overhead, which was definitely beneficial. It's pretty high cash flowing, not a lot of expenses. But yeah, I, I was kind of saving with that in mind, knowing that at some point I did want to take that risk. When I started Bombas, though, I had no idea what that would be. It was just something that I had always had kind of inside me where I was just perpetually frustrated that I knew I wanted to go do something of my own, but I wasn't doing something of my own. And um, obviously I needed to be patient and wait for it to work itself out, but I'm not the most patient person. So that was just something that I was wrestling with a bit internally. But yeah, I guess the saving kind of was a direct direct byproduct of that. Well, you, you kind of got me to where I wanted to go next is more the mental hurdles, both on start, and you can take it from either way, and we can go down both paths of, of starting, like basically picking the content um, creation, you know, kind of as the avenue for you in, in this you know, business you're doing now. But then also kind of on the same token is the mental hurdles to actually leave. Like, what were the doubts you had to actually say, am I ready to do this? Do I have enough money? Like, what's going to happen if I don't pay rent? Yeah, I can go to my parents, but do I want to do that? You know, that mental kind of circus that jumps around in our head. I'm just kind of curious. You could take it from either a start, but really the mental, um, you know, hurdles that you went through during the process. Yeah, for sure. So I'll start with the first one. Basically, obviously, like I said, I've been writing for my whole life in different formats. And I built up this audience writing about emerging technology and entrepreneurship and these topics that I was pretty well read on, well researched on. And people liked it, right? I had people that I'd met that are now friends. I had people I met that are now clients who have been reading my work for years and they were giving me positive feedback. Um, at the same time, this was right in like peak COVID, blockchain was booming, NFTs were a thing. Um, I'd been interested in the blockchain space and crypto space since 2017 and had been following it pretty closely. So had a, definitely a good underlying knowledge of you know how the blockchain functioned, how wallets worked, how exchanges work, a lot of things that people might not have been as comfortable with at the time. Mm -hmm. And for the newsletter, um, probably in December of 2020, or around where Top Shot was, like right before the uh, March 2021 boom for NFTs, I wrote a piece that was just like, what is an NFT? Super high level, super, super like NFT for dummies explainer. But the way that I even discovered that was I was on Twitter. I saw a tweet that at the time was like, all of my smartest friends are talking about NFTs. No one knows about that. And at the time, like no one knew what an NFT was, myself included. I spent like eight hours in the rabbit hole figuring it out. And I wrote this really high level explainer. Um, it did fine on the newsletter, like no one, nothing crazy. No one really batted an eye. But um, March 2020, when NFTs were all the range, or 2021, when NFTs were all the rage, I pumped that uh, article out on Twitter and people loved it. Like it got shared by so many people. It became my most shared post, like tens of thousands of views and shares and um there was a kind of like light bulb that went off in my head. What if I take these complex topics, explain them into really, you know, high level, simple terms that's engaging, understandable, digestible. And I think there could be a business around that. And so there was such a demand for blockchain content, NFT content, Web3 content, that that kind of became my first niche. 
And so, you know, landed a freelance gig with NFT Now, which at the time was this budding NFT media publication, which has since become kind of the premier NFT publication and did a ton of stuff for them. And that idea of taking these complex topics, not only in Web3, but expanding into B2B software, into retail tech, into deep tech construction, fintech, whatever it may be, um, that's something that's kind of still serves as a pillar of what Third World does today. So that just came from my interest and my exploration that had carried over four years and coupling that with my ability to write. And this niche kind of opened up on its own. And there weren't that many people who, one, either wanted to write about it or were quite good at writing about it and also um, understood the technology. So that's how that niche came from. And then to go to your second part on the mental side, um, like I said, it was it was probably perfect timing. Like there's never going to be a good time, but I was feeling ready to leave. I knew that my path in product development probably wasn't, I wasn't going to hit that or I was hitting that ceiling. I wasn't really going to excel any further. And I was ready to do something new. And I really enjoyed writing. I knew that this was a skill that I could monetize and there was clearly demand for my technical know-how and ability to simplify that down into a um, you know digestible piece of content. And the two just kind of joined up perfectly. So the timing was right. And the biggest mental hurdle was, you know, what if I fail and move back to my parents? But again, because I was young, because I didn't have kids, I didn't have a mortgage, I didn't have a lot of the more um, burdening financial responsibilities, it made it a lot easier for me to take that jump because the absolute worst thing was why, what if I move home and then I'll just get another job. And um, at the time, the job market was a lot easier than it is now. So I think it made it a bit easier also to make that decision. I'm not sure if where we are now, the same kind of mindset would have applied, but that was my logic at the time. Mm. Well, how did you feel day one? First day, first day you're on your own, no, no Bomba salary to back you up. Yeah. I mean, because of that we'll call it the lucky tweet because of the tweet that ended up kind of filling up my calendar. I didn't have time to kind of panic. I didn't have time to think about it. I just needed to jump in. Like I had deadlines, I had clients, I had stuff I needed to do. So I went zero to a hundred really quickly. And that pace has never, luckily hasn't slowed down since it's just been nonstop. And I'm someone who loves to work. I love to build things. And I don't know, I feel like it's almost a game of just trying to get to that next level. And I really enjoyed that. So those, you know, first 10 months until I hired my first employee and started to outsource things, it was really all me. And it was pretty, you know, a lot of writing, a lot of sitting inside my apartment, not leaving, just locked into research, which eight different Google tabs open and things like that. But uh, yeah, it was a fun time, but definitely a bit stressful. How did you think about like, obviously doing that for whatever, 10 months yourself and then hire that? This has come up so much on the podcast, like hiring that first person, like that's a huge step because you could have went a variety, you could have got a virtual assistant to take some off your plate. You could have kept right. Like, how did you think of that first hire and, and who you wanted it to be and how you wanted them to work and, and all that stuff? Yeah, I think, I mean, the biggest mistake that I probably made was not outsourcing things soon enough, um, not delegating certain writing tasks. So I definitely, there was a phrase that people used at Bombas. I think like first round capital was the one who coined it, but it was the idea of giving up your Legos and basically like giving up these tasks that you own and letting yourself focus on bigger things. And so I was terrified to give up my Legos on the writing side because yeah, I was a great writer and people were paying really good money to have really, you know, technical content written and it was really good. And finding someone to do that, who had the technology, who also had the writing skill, um, that scared me. 
And so I definitely waited too long. Um, in the beginning, I started with freelancers and freelancers are very hit or miss. There's a lot of um, management that goes on. You know, I had freelancers who started an article and then went ghost and you know, left me at the deadline, just things like there's a lot of communication stuff that um, you sacrifice for instead of having full-time employees, obviously there's pros and cons to both. But after having some experiences with freelancers that weren't so great, it became pretty clear that I wanted to have, um, you know, people full-time that I could rely on that were part of a bigger team. Um, there were many reasons for that. One of them being after you sit inside alone for 10 months writing, you kind of miss that connection, that human connection, that part of being a team. Um, I also, some people are totally content freelancing and kind of having a lifestyle business in that regard, having my kind of entrepreneurial endeavors that I've had since a young age, I knew I wanted to try to build something bigger, build an agency, build something that had a bit of enterprise value. And that kind of shaped my decision to go the full-time route instead of freelancer route. But I still use freelancers on a case-by-case basis. And um, now the team as of today is three full-time writers. So things are growing, but yeah, the biggest mistake I made was not letting myself um, free up my time to focus on higher level things and still staying in the, the day-to-day weeds. Uh, going back to, I guess, kind of similar to what I asked about, hey, the dollar amount to leave, did you have that in mind, like to say, hey, I got to pay this person, you know, I, I got to cover some, I don't know, I'm assuming maybe some health insurance, other stuff that you probably didn't even think about before, but like, did you have, again, a number that, okay, I have to hit a certain amount of revenue to be able to afford this person, or was the point to say, hey, if I bring them on, I can now focus on more sales and bring in more clients. What was your thought process? Yeah, it was more the latter. Um, I mean, it just got to the point where I was physically unable to handle everything myself. And I think um, a lot of freelancers, they might say, oh, you know, I run my own business. I'm my own boss. But when you're freelancing, you actually just have 10 bosses and you're still very, you know, they're your clients and you're still very much trading your time for money. Um, so yes, you have more control over your time, but you're still renting your time for money. And in my case, I felt that I actually had less control just because I was so bogged down by client work that I couldn't find time in the day to eat. I couldn't find time in the day to go outside and go work out. And so it was pretty clear that something needed to change. And so again, it was just kind of like a necessity breeds innovation type thing. Like I needed to outsource stuff and I needed to free up time. And naturally when you do have the time to focus on sales and other higher level strategy things, then um, things start to grow, but like someone described, you know, the solo kind of agency founder life is pretty tough because naturally you want to have one person who focuses on bringing in new clients and one person who focuses on retaining them. And in my case, I was doing both. So I'd bring in a client, I would do a bunch of work for them to focus on retaining them, just the way things work, people inevitably churn. And so when they churn, then you're back on the hamster wheel of finding new clients and you're never, you're always in that never ending kind of cycle. Whereas if you are able to outsource things and focus on higher level work, yes, you still need to make sure that the work is quality and that you're still retaining clients with the work you deliver. But if you're not the one who's doing all the day-to-day writing and the day-to-day fulfillment, you're able to free up your time to focus on higher level tasks. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and I guess when it comes down to it too, it's like you're, you, you want to be an entrepreneur. You want to like run your business, but it's really the business starts kind of dictating you don't have that freedom that you ultimately want or that's the thing hey i just want to run some content i want to go out and do my thing but yeah you get stuck almost in a worse position than you are working the nine to five because at least there you get to leave at night yep and your job yeah. with the freelance as a freelancer you have to do this work i got to get the client's work so yeah you're bound to deadlines especially yeah. and if especially if you're ambitious and just your freelancer in general it's your you eat what you kill right this is 
your income, things ebb and flow, recessions happen, there's demand, downturns in demand. There's a, always this feeling, I think, in the back of any freelancer's head. It's like, yeah, things are going well, but they could all end tomorrow. You know, they could all mm -hmm. go bust tomorrow. So when someone comes to you and says, do you want to do this work? Do you want to do this project? Even if your plate is, you know, overflowing, you're probably going to say yes, and you're going to try to make it work. And I think that that's a um, trap that a lot of freelancers fall into, where they actually end up, like you said, sacrificing a lot of freedom um, that they actually did have at their nine to five job just to make this work. And again, there's pros and cons to both. But for me, it did get to that point, And it actually started to make me pretty unhappy. And it became clear that one, things needed to change just for my happiness. But two, building an agency, building something that was bigger than myself was something that was part of the plan all along. Mm -hmm. um, so it just was the natural next step. Well, and I think that's part of and I'm curious, maybe how maybe this will change as you get older, too. But like defining success, you know, oftentimes we don't define it. It's, it's always like, oh, they have this business or they're making this money. That's like online. That seems like the indicator. But success is different. Again, maybe it's freedom. It's autonomy. It's, you know, for me, it's that I can take my son to school in the morning and pick him up, you know, in the afternoon, like those things are important. So yeah, if you're like a slave to your, you know, your computer and those clients that, that need that stuff done, are you actually living what you would consider success? And I think that's important for a lot of folks to actually go and do that exercise of like, what does success mean to you? Because that's ultimately how you make those decisions. Because um, as you know, you won't, there's either you're only going to work more hours, which at some point, there's a cap because you have to sleep, you do have to eat at some point or you can raise your rates. Because if you're a single person and you're doing client work, like it's it's time, that's all it is. Versus yep. being able to, okay, I'm gonna get some employees, I'm gonna be able to now actually scale this a little bit further. So again, it goes back to like how you think about it. I don't know, do you have a definition of success for yourself? Have you defined that or? Yeah, I mean, when I left, and this probably answers your question from before, but I remember telling my mom, I was like, if I can make $50,000 a year writing on my own time, that wouldn't have even covered like my rent and cost of living. I would have still needed to pull out of my savings, but it, I would have been happy. I would have been able to, you know, achieve that dream of working for myself and making things work. Um, luckily things have gone better than that, but at the core at when I left, that was the definition of quote unquote success. But for me, it was also, and this was something that dated back to kind of, even when I was a teenager, I always wanted the freedom to kind of do what I want when I want. And obviously there's, can't do that all the time. But like you said, having that autonomy to make your decisions to attend your son's ball game or make decisions mm -hmm. to go to a friend's party. I didn't want to be I didn't want to be tied down to certain things. And that um, I felt in the beginning, like I was actually not getting that freedom at all. And that's why things needed to change. And that's where kind of that outsourcing came. But that leads directly into the traveling I was doing. But that was really getting that freedom. That was the first time where, um, you know, I think every ambitious 20 something wants to maybe be the next Mark Zuckerberg or have this massive business. And that was definitely me. But as in the last year, it's definitely shifted to, I just want to, you know, make enough money to live, make enough money to obviously set up my future family and be able to do a bunch of really cool things. But that's not the defining factor. It's actually having the freedom to be able to do what I want when I want travel, um, go places, yeah. see friends, things of that nature. And so far, with the current setup, that's I've been building my business with that goal in mind. So building the operations with that goal in mind, hiring people with that goal in mind, and I've been able to achieve that. And so um, right now, that's kind of my current baseline of success, okay. but I'm sure naturally the goalposts will move. Yeah. Well, and I'm probably going to paraphrase this and not get it, but I, I remember in 4-Hour Workweek, Tim Ferriss had something something along the line, and I'm, I'm probably misremembering this, but like if you can't 
leave your business for a month and have it run smoothly, like you're the bottleneck, something along those lines. And I think about that a lot. And I don't know if you do as well. I kind of thought of, again, if you're the only talent, you can't go on a two-week vacation because people are relying on you to get the work done, right? You can't travel potentially because you have these deadlines. So I think, again, that goes back to like, what do you want to achieve? And ultimately that makes a lot of the decisions of how you set up the business, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, two things that definitely shaped that one, one of the first projects that I worked on when I was freelancing was ghostwriting an ebook for an entrepreneur who had just exited one of his businesses. And he talked about um, one of the biggest mistakes that he made was working in the business, not on the business. So exactly what you said, spending all your time in the day to day and not getting to focus on the higher level strategy. And um, part of that building, you know, I worked with an external consultant, which helped me with some of the operations and getting some automations and systems set up. And he has a tagline, like, uh, I think it's like build the dream, not a prison. But it's very easy to build a business that is actually um, a prison that it traps you in there. And even though you're striving for all that freedom, you end up getting so caught up in the day to day that you're not able to enjoy a lot of the things that probably initially inspired you to go do your own thing in the first place. Mm. And I think that there needs to be in any business some periods of where you're just locked up doing your thing, you know, grinding away. And, it, you know, I'm not running a massive venture back moonshot right now. It's a small agency. So there's different kind of demands in terms of what's needed. But I do think that any, for me, the goal is to always have that freedom, whatever project I take on. So if someone, let, let's say someone kind of is, is you a year ago, year and a half ago, two years ago, right? They want to leave it, they have the itch, maybe they have an idea, any advice, insight, thoughts, just anything that, you know, might jump around in your head that you'd share with them to kind of help them, yeah. you know, kind of maybe make that decision easier, or at least think about things, you know, thoroughly. Yeah, I think the biggest advice would be to get started while you still have the job. So I'm a big believer in do it. Yeah, you need to sacrifice some nights and weekends, but trying to get something off the ground while you still have the financial security of the job, it makes it a lot less stressful. And you're also able to kind of prove your concept, prove if whatever you're offering in the marketplace, whether it be a product or a service actually has demand, whether it works, you're able to get feedback on it. And it made it a lot easier for me to leave knowing that I already had some clients that I already had this niche that there was demand and that people liked my work. Um, if I just went in completely blind and was starting from zero while also facing the pressures of, you know, having no income. And mm -hmm. obviously I'm sure, you know, parents and friends and other people are like, Oh, what are you doing? All the right. kind of societal pressures that you naturally feel it would have been a lot harder. So if you're able to do it, I would definitely say, try to do whatever you want to do on the side and build that up for as far as you can. And you don't need to necessarily have it replace your income before you leave, but get it to a point where, there is that proof of concept where you are confident that it might be beneficial to leave because all that time will actually just be an enhancer to whatever you're already doing. Yeah, I love that. And, and if I even added one thing along with it is if you can't dedicate, I mean, let's make up a random number, one hour a week or excuse me, one hour a day, you know, so it's five to let's say five to seven hours a week at a venture. How are you going to do it for 40 to 50 hours? if you leave the right. job. So like, that's almost a little test of like, am I even putting the time and effort into this? Because we're always going to get tired doing whatever, just like with the freelancing, when you were doing initially only yourself, like you're going to get tired, you're going to burn out at times, you're going to have to take breaks. Sure. But being able to put that extra time in when necessary, you got to somehow hit an extra gear 
So I think that's a, yep. just another thing of like, if you can't do five to seven hours a week, how can you do four to five times that if you're yeah. doing it on your own, you know? hundred percent. And it's just, uh, you know, it's like people are always like, you got to show up just even on days that you don't want to show up, you got to show up. And that applies when you're doing it full-time that applies when you're doing it part-time, but even more so when you're doing it part-time. So to your point, if you're not going to show up on the days when you're not even fully dedicated to it, then how do you expect to show up on the days when you are fully dedicated to it and you don't have a choice? There's no other, you know, source of income. There's no other, uh, you're just relying on yourself basically. So, yeah. yeah. Rand, this has been awesome, man. Any final thoughts, words of encouragement, insights, anything you would share? I think the biggest thing is to just bet on yourself. Um, you know, that's something that I've definitely been doing my whole life. And I think it all starts having the self-confidence and that replies to rates that applies to, you know, I see a lot of writers who underprice themselves simply because they don't think that they can justify mm -hmm. charging higher rates or they don't know what the higher rates to charge. But um, and the biggest thing, bet on yourself and raise your rates. You never know if the worst thing that happens is someone is going to say no, um, especially if they've already worked with you before. But like you said, there's only two ways to kind of grow your business. It's either raise your rates or hire people because your time is pretty finite. So that's the biggest thing. Awesome, man. Um, where can everyone check you out? Where, are you spending time not as much on Twitter anymore? Are you getting back on there or what's the... Yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn are probably the two biggest places trying to ramp up the content output. I try to devote only a few kind of 30 minutes a day on each platform so I don't get distracted. But yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn on Twitter, I think it's Ginsburg Randy on LinkedIn. You just search my name, Randy Ginsburg, and then um, thirdwallcreative.com is the agency's website. So you can go check it out there. We're going to start posting a bunch of content on there as well. Awesome. And and with Thirdwall, what, who are you working with? What type of organizations? Yeah. So we're a content marketing and copywriting agency. We work with uh, B2B tech companies and venture capital firms. So doing everything from end-to-end -end content strategy. So building out the editorial roadmaps, doing internal interviews to figure out exactly who you're targeting, what you're writing about, and how you're going to distribute it, and then executing on that plan. So the full content production, blogs, articles, case studies, long form down to the shorter uh, copywriting. So ad copy, landing page copy, email copy, things of that nature. Basically, everything within the scope of the written word um, we handle right now. Awesome. Well, Randy, man, thanks for coming back on. This is a lot of fun. And congrats. On what, I mean, you've obviously uh, scaled it very well in just a short period of time. So uh, congrats on what you've done, man. It's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate it, Brian. And I appreciate the time and the platform. And uh, yeah, keep crushing it. Hey, everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianandraco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions, where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in and have a phenomenal day.